Happy New Year. Anybody written a check with 2022 on it yet? It's probably just a matter of time for me. Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This episode is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends, Bulbs, and GreatGardenPlants.com. I'm Leslie Harris, and it's a new year for gardening. This is a different type of episode in the spirit of Christmas, which is actually Christmas past at this stage, but you know how that holiday lingers on in the form of decorations yet to be stowed, remnants of goodies still on our shelves or on our hips. Anyway, I've asked for some of my gardening pals to pitch in for us to share a sustainable gardening tip. And speaking of the ghost of Christmas past, if I sound a little like I have a cold, it's because grandchildren are wonderful, wonderful beings who will someday learn to blow their noses and cover their mouths when they cough. Worth it. Totally worth it. All right. So the way I called in the favor was to ask to my gardening pals, what are you doing now that you didn't used to do and you changed because you found out it was better for your garden and or your soil and or the earth, any of those sustainable things that you didn't used to do? I've had some great responses from a lot of great gardeners, ranging from the specificity of how not to waste seasonal amaryllis bulbs to something as general as the philosophy of looking at gardening versus wild spaces on your property completely differently than you might right now. If you're a regular listener of Into the Garden with Leslie, you know that I am a sustainable gardener, but that's not really how I call myself or I think of myself first. I'm just a gardener, ornamental for good or bad, not too interested in veg, very interested in beauty, design, tinkering, experimenting, propagating, and learning. And those are in no particular order, but the learning part is a pretty important component for me. Um, why do you think I have all these fabulous brainy guests on my podcast? The sustainability piece is almost intrinsic for me now, meaning I consider my impact on my little plot to have ramifications on our bigger earth, and I hope you do too your garden, our earth. I bet you do. It may be a case of preaching to the choir here. Still, there's always more to know, and I'm so grateful to my gift givers of sustainability, my guests that I'm going to share with you, for sharing with us on this episode. Listen up, because you're probably either going to learn a specific new tip or have something you already do validated. And don't you love validation? It's like a 50-cent word for smugness. Or maybe you'll just look at gardening in a slightly different way that may make a positive impact on your little patch of the world. Let's start immediate and very specific. Amaryllis, or more correctly, hippiastrum bulbs. The correct name for this plant isn't the point of my story, but amaryllis is actually a botanical name for a slightly different type of bulb. What we call amaryllis is botanically hippiastrum. Don't, don't fret about that. That's not important. You know what we're talking about. Those misshapen baseballs that we buy in fall and they become beautiful blooms for us in winter. They're so hard to resist. I love them. But I actually kind of put the brakes on growing them for the last couple of years because, well, for one, I was traveling at Christmas, but also because I felt a little funny about the waste. It's not easy for me anyway to have them come back year after year. And I used to punish myself about that until I heard somebody on Gardener's Question Time. And it was, if you listen to that one, it was Bob Flowerdew. And he's like always saving everything. And and he got asked the question about amaryllis bulbs. And he said, no, no, you just throw them away and start again. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I have an excuse. And I have no problem exchanging dollars for plants. I think if if you know me, you know that. And I didn't totally turn against them. But my enthusiasm flagged because I'm like, okay, this is such a one-hit wonder until I found this information from Linda Vodder of Potashe Blog. So 
Linda did not have time to send in a recording of her own information, but she and I worked together to have me talk about her ideas. And I'm going to put a link to the specific YouTube that she talks about amaryllis bulbs on. But let me just share it with you this way. She's really very realistic about getting them to bloom on command for her at the holidays year after year. She hasn't mastered that skill and she's not interested in doing it. But she does save her favorite bulbs, and here's what she does with them. And this is a very doable system that I'm going to start this spring. Well, immediately, really, because I have some blooming right now. When I heard her talking about it last fall, it made me want to buy more amaryllis, more amaryllis, than I probably would have. So what she does is she buys her bulbs, and she very easily follows the directions and gets them blooming at the holidays, which I'm sure is not too difficult for most gardeners. I can even do that. A couple of little tips as they're blooming, you want to remove any spent blooms because number one, they don't look gorgeous. And number two, they're robbing the energy from the bulb as they try to set seed. And you want that bulb to be strong. And I'm going to tell you why. So don't let them set seed. After all the flowers have finished, Linda cuts the stalks down and she might control the foliage a little bit. If it's flopping, she might like pull it together with some string. The foliage will splay, but it's important not to let the leaves be bound together so that they don't each get some sun and photosynthesize. Now, this becomes a houseplant, and it's not going to be your most beautiful houseplant. They're not tragic, but like if you've been growing it by your fireplace because that's where it looked pretty and there's no sunlight there, you probably want to put them in a sunnier space. They're probably already in a beautiful bowl for the holidays. Just keep them there in pretty good light. Continue to water and feed them. And then in springtime, you take them outside. Now they become a cute little house plant that you've taken outside because there's no danger of frost, same as you would do for a lot of your indoor plants. Now chances are that you still have it in that small, cute holiday bowl. And this is where you want to combine the ones that you grew last winter and put them in one big pot. So this is what Linda does. She puts them together like a tropical foliage container And she has that outside with plenty of food and water and decent light, but not scorching sunshine all summer long. They could use some afternoon shade. So they grow along merrily until late August or September. And then she takes the whole darn big pot into the garage and she lets it go dormant. The foliage will wither. She cuts it away. So now we're back up to the time of year, early fall, when actually most retail establishment think that it's already Christmas. So we're like, okay, we got these bulbs that Linda told us to save and we've nurtured them all summer. How are we going to get them to bloom? Remember, Linda doesn't even recommend trying that. She buys new bulbs every year. She sets them up beautifully in cute little containers and decorates her house for the season with them. And if you haven't seen her Instagram or YouTube, well, you can go there and drool. I'll put links in the blog for this episode. She does it upright. So what does she do with the ones in the big pot that she saved? Well, she starts growing them again in that big pot in January or February in the house as houseplants. And then she puts them outside again when all danger of frost has passed. Then comes the magic. Sometime next summer, so this means 18 months after the time that she originally bought these bulbs, they are going to flower. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're like, dude, I'm fine to go shopping for more amaryllis bulbs. Forget this hassle that you are describing. But wait, now think about it. The strategy is more about the lack of waste and you get two big bonuses. One is not so big. It's a lovely summer container of strappy, tropical-looking foliage all summer, the summer after they've bloomed. And then the next summer, 
the huge bonus of incongruous lily-like amaryllis blooms in that container in the next summer. I mean, I'm doing it. I'm absolutely doing it. Thanks for the tip, Linda. And I can't wait to see what happens the summer of 2024. (laughs) Does sound ambitious, doesn't it? Okay, let's go on to the next first of two tips from Erin, the Impatient Gardener. Erin Shannon has been on this show a couple of times. Back in episode 39, we just had a general chat about her Southeast Wisconsin garden. And then in episode 75, we got the lowdown about a new garden that she and Roy Diblett collaborated on. So here's Erin's first tip. It's so simple and so easy on the earth and on you. So a few years ago, I started using the chop and drop method of garden cleanup. Now I leave all my garden cleanup to spring. And so what I do now is I just go into any plant material that's still standing. I just go in there and chop it a couple of times and then let it drop on the ground. Now, a more efficient way to do this is using a mulching mower. That's a little bit hard in my garden because it's not necessarily flat. So that's a little hard to get a mower in there. But that's a great way to do it if you're able to do that. For the most part, though, I just chop things a couple of times while they're still standing and let them drop on the ground. This way, I'm also saving time by not having to come back and mulch again. And because this is plant material that's laying there breaking down into mulch and becoming a soil amendment you know i think it's a little bit better for the plants because it's not like i'm bringing in a big wood chip out of a bag um, which some plants obviously haven't exactly adapted to learn to live in like a wood chip mulch so this is a natural mulch i save time it is not exactly the prettiest thing when you first do it, but my garden is not the prettiest thing in early spring to begin with. So this is really no different. And it breaks down very quickly, adds great nutrients to the soil, and it's less hauling away for me. I just chop it in place and leave it lay. It's a great tip. It's sort of silly when you think about all the things that we haul off to the compost pile, only to haul them back onto the garden later. The chop and drop is something that I use in all seasons. I'm beginning to use it more and more. As Aaron pointed out, in spring, it's probably the most effectual because you're looking to mulch anyway, and your garden of last summer has provided you with spring mulch. But in summer and fall, it can also work great because you can hide your little chops behind other plants, and it's not quite such an earthy look, shall we say. You just tuck in bits of organic debris behind other plants, and you're creating tiny little compost piles all over your garden. And you never have to turn these piles, you never have to deal with them or see them again. Chop and drop is a great method. Thank you, Erin. Let's go from specific to more philosophical. Many of you are followers of the sweetest gardener on earth, and in her case, it's the far side of the earth, down in Launceston, Tasmania, Australia. Her name is Julie Hart, an appropriate surname because she has a lot of it, but in my mind, she's Nanny New because that is what her grandchildren call her, and that was the name of an Instagram account before it got hacked. Anyway, she is Nanny's Diary 92 Following her on Instagram is like following a ray of sunshine. I had her on the show back in episode 49, and she had lots of gardening advice for us. I think my favorite was the very simple, don't waste your 10 minutes, meaning that even just pulling a few quick weeds or sloshing some water around for a couple of plants can be fun and rewarding in the garden. Don't think that you have to set aside all afternoon anytime you want to get into it. But her sustainable tips for this episode, well, I'm just going to read you her email and Try to imagine a very soothing Aussie grandmother accent to back it up. Hi, Leslie. 
Okay, I'll stop doing that. Thanks for including me. You have to remember that when I started gardening in my 40s, sustainability wasn't even considered by most people. We wanted gardens like the ones in England with wide borders and green swards. So we clipped and we sprayed and we watered. Water was free. And we did our best to whip our garden into shape. Oh, by the way, this is me talking. I had to look up the word sward. It's basically a big turf area. Back to Julie. Gradually, however, we began to realize that we had to adapt our patch. Our lawns would never be as green as in England. These days, I mulch more and I water less. I don't spray because I love the birds and the bees and the ladybirds. Do I get black spot on the roses? Of course, but I refuse to let it worry me. My tip, garden to where you are, not to where you think you are, or even where you might like to be. Happy gardening, lovely friend. Words of wisdom from Tasmania, from Nanny New. And here's a bonus from her. She wrote in a separate email, Oh, I forgot to mention one other little tip. It's probably silly, but I've done it for years. I have a jug on my sink and all the extra liquid, tea, coffee, etc., goes in it and then onto my pots. Nanny knew. Thank you for that. Our next contributor is Amanda, the ever hopeful gardener. Amanda was with me on episode 50 when we talked about all kinds of compost. She has a huge following on Instagram and she makes her gardening fun and funny. Listen to what she talks about in this clip and how she's taken away even the most organic and accepted forms of controlling bugs in her garden. I'm Amanda, the ever hopeful gardener, and a gardening strategy or technique that I have adopted in my garden and yard is the elimination of any and all pesticides, which includes insecticides, herbicides, and fungicides. I have always followed organic practices when using any product to treat issues in my garden, but I have stopped even the use of organic pesticides. This means no neem oil, no insecticidal soap, no BT, no diatomaceous earth, and the list goes on. You might think I'm crazy to take this approach and wonder if all my hard garden work gets eaten by insects. Spoiler, I do have insect damage. I do have holes in my leaves, but I don't mind them. The kale still tastes just as good with a few holes and after washing off some aphids or white flies. I have converted from an organic gardener to a regenerative gardener, and this has actually been the most productive practice I have ever adopted. Over time, and it does take time, my garden and the ecosystem it is a part of will find a balance and equilibrium, and the good pests will balance the bad pests. We've been conditioned, thanks in large to companies telling us so, to think that there is a good and quick fix for every problem. Garden marketing has made sure of that. However, the fast fixes we are shown can actually cause more harm than good. Even the organic pest sprays can weaken a plant's microbiome, which makes it more susceptible to attacks from a different type of insect. So when we spray to rid the plant of one type of insect, the plant is weakened and another type of insect thinks that looks good to me and moves in. Then we spray to combat that particular pest and the cycle just goes on and on. The plant is never given the opportunity to build its own defenses or we don't give the beneficial pests enough time to move in and make a lunch out of the bad ones. I cannot tell you how freeing it has been to let go of trying to manage all the pests and diseases in my garden. The understanding that nature is not perfect, there will be some bites taken out of the leaves, there will be years that are better than others, has allowed me to enjoy my garden on such a more profound level. Not only have I removed the stress of figuring out what product to use to fix whatever current issue I'm having, 
I know that removing the man-made interferences in my garden ecosystem is a step on a path towards regenerative gardening. I'm following nature's lead and building the soil health by making my own compost, which leads to healthy plants, which leads to fewer insect issues. I'm planting biodiversity to attract all kinds of different insects, which will all balance each other out. I have, in a sense, completely let go. I have stopped trying to manage and control nature and instead work with it. And I have never enjoyed my garden more. I'm so impressed. I love to see holes in my leaves in the garden. I mean, I don't love it, but I'm beginning to really like it. But remember, I don't grow a lot of things that I put into my mouth. It sounds like Amanda has trained herself to just accept that this is part of the deal. It's easy for me not to use anything in my garden because I'm cheap and disorganized and I probably wouldn't know how to use it right. But Amanda, with her many edibles, that's a different thing. And it's really great to hear that she uses nothing. On a similar topic, here's Erin Shannon, the impatient gardener, talking again about how she stumbled into the no pesticide thing simply by not paying much attention to her garden one summer. Hi, Leslie. I came across my favorite sustainable gardening practice completely by accident and mostly because I just got really busy one summer. So I had no time to really look at the minutia of the garden one year. And so some of the things that I might have noticed in the past, I didn't, including perhaps some insects that were on plants, aphids here, various things around. And because I didn't notice them, they just kind of ran their course. And I think that year in my garden became a bit of a reset because normally I would go in and if I had seen aphids on a plant, I would have immediately hit that up with um, a hose. And then I probably would have next gone to insecticidal soap or something like that. But by letting those things run their course, I think my garden came into a better ecological balance. So the aphids were there and then the good bugs came because I was providing food at the buffet for them. And so this was sort of the great reset of my garden. And now I don't worry about these things. I just let them run their course. I keep an eye on them. Of course, if I notice them, I keep an eye on them and make sure that nothing's, you know, going to run away on me. But for the most part, everything sort of balances out and the good bugs come along and take care of the bugs that I don't want. And by having a few of those bugs that I don't want around, I actually have food to invite more good bugs and insects and wonderful wildlife into my garden. So both Aaron and Amanda, thanks for that inspiration about letting our buggies be in the garden. Okay, next is Emma Biggs. To say that Emma is enthusiastic about tomatoes is um, understatement. She was a guest on episode 52. She gardens way up in Ontario, and she and her father, Stephen, do a podcast called The Food Garden Life Show. It's quite good. Emma sent information about a type of watering system that I had never heard of. It's called sub-irrigation containers, and you can buy them, but you can easily make your own. Listen to how she describes them. Hello, Leslie and listeners. Emma Biggs here. The gardening practice that I have taken on is a win for sustainability, both in terms of the environment and the gardener. As we all know, water is a basic need, not just for our gardens, but for so many other aspects of our lives too. But there isn't enough of it to go around. Fortunately, here in Toronto, water isn't as limited as it is in some places, but nevertheless, we do what we can to conserve it. One of the ways that I do this is by using sub-irrigation containers, also known as self-watering containers. 
The basics of how they work is that there's a reservoir in the bottom of the container and when you fill it up, water wicks up through the soil and gives the plants a constant supply of water. The containers have an overflow hole above the reservoir to make sure that your plants never go for a swim or have wet feet, but overall they conserve water that would be lost through evaporation with surface watering or through drainage in a typical growing container. They also collect and conserve water when it rains. Now, in terms of sustainability for gardeners, they also mean that you have to water less, which is a win, especially if you're like me and enjoy sleeping in. So sub-irrigation containers are available for sale, but better yet, you can make them yourself with materials that you already have around at home, you can customize them to your needs and do so for a fraction of the cost. So if you want to scale up this idea, make sure that you also check out wicking beds, which work with exactly the same concept, except do so on a much larger scale. So I hope that all of you check out sub-irrigation containers. There's tons of really great DIY build ideas online, and they're a really great way to keep busy while our gardens rest. Happy New Year and all the best in your gardens in 2023. Okay, because I was totally ignorant on this subject, I did a little dive on the Google machine, and it looks impressive. But aesthetically, uh, maybe we moderate our standards if we want to use one of these things or build one because there's a lot of plastic involved. We're talking about plastic bins, PVC piping, no arbors, nor urns, nor gargoyles, unless you can figure out a way to artfully add them in. But it's an amazing system for keeping your vegetables moist but not soggy, and concurrently not being a slave to get out the hose all the time. It would probably work great for cuttings as you're trying to bring them along too. Emma described it really well, but it's much easier to visualize. So I'm going to put some links in the blog post that goes along with this episode, or you can just Google up a storm yourself. So the two things you're looking for are wicking beds on a large scale or SIPs, sub-irrigated planters. If you don't feel like doing that, follow the links that I'll give to you on lhgardens.com. Basically, what we're talking about is a container that has a subterranean pond that gently and amiably makes itself available to water the roots of your plants, but never drowns those roots. So really good system. Won't win any beauty contests, but hey, if you want to raise plants, that's not what you're looking for right there. Thank you so much, Emma, for that great idea. Next one, here's my pal, Marianne. You guys know Marianne Wilburn. She's a garden writer and ranter. Probably the best gardening blog out there is GardenRant.com. And she's a frequent flyer on this show. And she and I went to Great Dixter for a week-long symposium together last April. And we basically haven't shut up about it since. So that's Marianne. And her sustainable tip is about poultry and how I should have them in my garden. Huh. Hope she's not judging me. Way back in episode 19, I had Lisa Steele on. She, she's called the chicken lady. And basically that interview was about her trying to convince me how to maintain my precious garden and also have chickens, which I've always wanted to have. I mean, I love eggs, but I don't understand how that corresponds with maintaining a good looking garden because they're destructive little buggers. I'll put a link to that chat in the show notes. And I also wrote an early blog post on how I am chicken about having chickens. So Marianne, here you go. Let's see what you can do to convince me about this. Hi, Leslie. I am going to try to get you to board the backyard chicken train, as I think it's one of the smartest sustainable practices that you and other gardeners can do for your garden. Now, I know you have made some, well, frankly, weak excuses in the past about being tempted, but not pulling the trigger. But let's see if I can't push you over the edge here. I know I'm 
mixing a million metaphors in the process. Now, about 20 years ago, I read the first American edition of Monty Don's The Complete Gardener. It was a lavishly illustrated book, uh, and there are many things in that book that got the juices flowing. I, and I'm, I'm speaking creatively. I'm not talking about all of the many pictures of a young strapping Monty Don. But above all, I came away with the conviction that as a gardener, I needed to have chickens as the easiest and most pleasurable way of naturally building my soils on this sort of uber local level. And that the cycle created between soil, flora, and fauna was one of the most basic and the most beautiful. But it was actually only 10 years ago when we moved to our current home that I could do that legally. I fought for that right in my last house for years. I even had them illegally for a time, but I'm a rule follower. I may be opinionated, but I'm a rule follower. And the stress of keeping them on the down low was just not pleasant. And I eventually found other homes for them. When we moved to our current home 10 years ago, the very first step towards garden making, and I mean the literal first step, was getting a coop and a run built. And I've been keeping chickens ever since from 24 hens at my height to a current uh, total of eight. And I think I could easily go down to four to six and be quite happy with the amount of eggs that we get and the amount of manure that I get. I can't think of anything that makes more sense for my garden or for the gardener. Sure, we all want fresh eggs, that's a bonus, but it truly is a bonus. I have chickens to create rich soils, period. It's about the breakdown of vegetation. It's about managing kitchen scraps. It's about manure. So a quick caveat, because I know you've been concerned about their destructive potential, and you should be. I don't care how many cutesy pics we see on Instagram with chickens wandering bucolically through the garden. They are incredibly destructive, not only to small seedlings and other tasty bites, but to the root zones of established plants, uh, shrubs, perennials, trees even, and not to mention your, the aesthetics of your graveled and mulched beds, your pathways, etc., and I have got better things to do than uglify my garden with a mass of protective barriers. I prefer to use that destructive skill set for good and not evil by keeping them in a large run off of their coop where they can scratch and tear and peck and break down all the forage that I throw to them. And my garden just gets to benefit from the soil created in, in those wonderful efforts. And that's actually why I keep ducks, because I get the joy of seeing them wandering around the garden like we're in a Beatrix Potter book, but I know that they're only eating slugs and worms and small amounts of weeds in dark corners, because it is beautiful to have poultry in a garden, just not chickens. So here's how I do it. Here's how I take care of them. They have a very secure coop and they have a less secure run. The coop has an automatic door that opens and closes at sunrise and sunset, and they're smart enough to get their tasty little butts into that coop before the sun goes down. Ducks are not that smart. They think they can just go it alone in the evening. And so consequently, they're on life support from us. If we don't close them in, they will be gone the next morning. So this, along with automatic waterers and automatic feeders, mean that we could conceivably 
go away for the weekend if we didn't have, well, things like the ducks relying upon us around here. So the coop has straw bedding in it. And once a season, sometimes twice in the summertime, I pitchfork the old manure heavy contents of the coop into the run where they scratch it into the soils. And then I refill it with fresh straw. And every other morning or so, I throw them the contents of my compost bin, which is in the kitchen. And that's made up of everything except for chicken. And that's just because of my queasiness, not theirs. They would sure as hell eat it if they could get their hands on it. So from coffee filters to fat drippings, they get it. And if they don't eat it, they scratch it into the soil. I throw them pretty much all of my weeds with the exception of really woody material, which simply takes too long to break down. And right now they are feasting on the remains of all of the autumn pumpkins, uh, not just the two or three that were on my porch, but since everybody knows I have chickens, they bring them over and they go into the coop. So what I end up with in the floor of that run are layers of deep, soft soil composed not only of manure, but of vegetation, of leaves, of scraps, and other soils that have been finely shredded and blended together by that fabulous, destructive chicken nature. I don't have to turn anything. I just have to let them sort it out. And when I need soil as a dressing or uh, as a, in a hole or in a bed, I bring the wheelbarrow in, I fill it up with dug soil and go. And it's a perfect proportion of actual soil to vegetation to manure all mixed up together. The chickens then have a field day with the holes I've dug because there are invariably insects in those layers and I've got the soil I need. So there you go. That's how I do it. Perhaps next time I come down, you and I could find a corner in your garden that could benefit from an artfully arranged coop. And my only concern for you would be that your precious compost pile, upon which you lavish a ridiculous amount of attention, would play second fiddle to your hens, because that's certainly what happened to my compost pile. When it comes to weeding, there is nothing more motivating than knowing that your hens are waiting for whatever wonderful greens you give them. And by the way, I was just notified that my old town finally passed a chicken ordinance so that citizens can keep chickens. It only took them 15 years, <laughs> but they passed it. Luckily for you, Charlottesville isn't going to stop you from employing a few hens in pursuit of a sustainable garden. So think about it, and maybe we'll talk about it more next time I visit. Okay, Marianne, first of all, it's not one compost pile. I have 10 of them, and yes, they are very precious to me, and I'm not quite sure why. But I really don't understand where this would take place on my hilly, shady land. The theory is top-notch, Marianne. It reminds me of that thing about, like, exercising and eating right and doing yoga and reading great books and getting all your chores done every day. It's great in theory, but how in the world do you end up pulling it off? So that means that my dear Jeff, who so does not want to be married to a chicken lady, is safe for now. Until and unless you get down here, Marianne, and show me exactly how and where I would pull off this chicken thing, he's safe. I'm jealous of your chickens, of your bucolic-friendly ducks, but for now, I suggest that you just bring me any extra eggs you have each time I see you. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> 
All right, next up, I got Bunny Williams to contribute. And because I so cleverly asked all of my gardening pals to help me out with this, like right before Christmas, which is pretty busy. I didn't get a recording from Bunny, but I got this idea that she has in her head. And I actually have this idea in my backyard. And that is a water collection system with tanks. So just like Emma Biggs in the sub-irrigation planter system, having a large water tank in your backyard is not the beautiful thing of the world. I mean, we're talking about plastic and 300 gallons. It's huge. I actually have two of them. Still, I maintained it's a very good system if you have this sort of circumstance that would permit you to collect the water and then hide the water and then use the water. Using the water is the easy part. Bunny Williams, if we keep an eye on how her idea evolves, can help us possibly to do this in a way that's aesthetically pleasing. But I have a way that really works, even though it's not beautiful. I first saw a system like this in my friend Karen Blair's garden. Karen is the artist who has sponsored this podcast, and her husband, Jimmy Jackson, is my Jeff's golf buddy. Jimmy is extremely handy. There's literally a hashtag on Instagram that says, Jimmy can do anything, because he can. On their previous property where they lived out in Crozet, he set up these big, ugly 300-gallon plastic tanks, you know, the ones with the metal cage around them that you see sometimes. You would recognize it if you saw it, and I'll put pictures on my blog post. Anyway, he collected water in those and then pumped it out to water his vegetables for free. Now, my Jeff is not um, famously handy, but he's kind of handy when he puts his mind to it. So he helped me to set up a similar system in my backyard. We live in the city of Charlottesville and water's expensive. Also, I don't happen to have any of those handy outdoor taps on one side of the back of my house. So I really have trouble with watering like half of my backyard. And the third thing that inspired me is that we live at the base of this small mountain and even any slight rainstorm ends up sending water hurtling down our street and into the local drainage system. So why not collect that water? Happily, there were already pipes attached to leaders collecting water from the roof of the garage. That system simply kept the water away from the garage and shot it down toward the stream that's in my backyard and the water just went on its merry way. But it was really simple to connect to those pipes and feed those pipes, which Jeff cleverly camouflage painted so that they don't stick out too much like PVC piping does in terms of ugliness. And we feed those into the tanks. Now, I said Jeff is handy, but he's not totally inspired to be handy all the time. So I got my real handyman guy that I pay, Tim, to help me choose a good sump pump and set up a system so that anytime those water tanks are full, I can easily pump the water out and water like half of my backyard for free. By the way, if you're interested in setting up the system, feel free to ask me any questions about it. Email me or reach out on Instagram. You do not want to do this in winter because those tanks are made of plastic and they can freeze. But I do it from basically November. I started up again in March. So Bunny, I'm excited to see what you can pull together for your vegetable garden. I guarantee you it's going to be 10 times more beautiful than what I've done and will serve the same purpose. I'll post pictures of my fairly hideous looking but efficient system on the blog post. And Bunny Williams, thank you for that great tip. So last up is Tasha Greer. Tasha is a writer and Epicurean homesteader in Northwestern North Carolina. And I had her on episode 67 to talk about her book, Weed Free Gardening, which sounds magical, but it was very realistic. You should go back and listen to that episode. But I'll let Tasha's sustainability contribution speak for itself. A lot of times as gardeners, we end up kind of reversing into ecological gardening. So we have this big lawn and or this big garden area 
and we decide to allocate a small space of it to wildlife. And so we create a little wildlife plot, you know, maybe we make it a little bigger each year, add some more native plants. Um, and that's a wonderful thing to do, especially if you live in a community where there are regulations that sort of prevent you from having too much wild space. But if you have the ability, the way I really like to think about it is to let everything be as wild as possible with as much plant diversity, with, you know, welcoming weeds, not invasive weeds that are actually detrimental to the environment, but weeds that, you know, just kind of fill up space and occupy soil and aren't very aggressive. And just sort of have that as the background for your, your garden. And then you carve out nooks and niches and small plots within that wild space to do your cultivated gardening. So when you walk around my landscape, I mean, I've got a mini vineyard, you know, 50 vines that are nicely, you know, planted and, and beautiful. I've got a big formal, what I call my potager garden, because it's very much in the French style uh, with rock pads and, and lots of pretty infrastructure arbors and things and of course there are exotic fruits like mirabelle plums and i've got figs and um, lots of different apples but on any space outside those garden areas it's full of thickets that are just teeming with birds and there's all sorts of wild flowers some which are you know on the weedy side and some which are a little bit more restrained um, there are little ponds and watering holes and so it's like the landscape is wild, but then I've reclaimed these little garden rooms, these, these spaces that are kind of for me. And what happens when you do that is that you've got wildlife like birds and pollinators going back and forth between all of your wild spaces. And they're flying over your garden and they're pollinating your plants for you. Um, and you don't have to create habitat for them within your garden because their habitat is all around and they just come to visit your garden. And when you garden that way, the benefit is that your garden gets to look the way you want it to because you've got these cultivated spaces that are very much designed for your use and your taste, but you've created habitat everywhere else outside your garden for all the wild things that are going to make your garden function better. It might be too late in your garden to have this very freeing idea that Tasha presents, the notion of going about it backwards. Instead of organizing and cultivating your entire property, why not just leave wild what you don't want or need, specializing your gardening talents on what you do want? Well, in so many cases, that ship has sailed. If your plot is small or if you inherited something that's kind of all lawn or you've gardened there for many years, you can't do exactly what Tosh is talking about. But it's still a refreshing notion and you can undo some of what you've done. And if you happen to be a listener who does have a lot of wild space on your property, isn't this philosophy wonderful? Just think about it. You just don't have to get all of it. Just get what you want. Now, I do think that we have a responsibility to rid our properties of alien invasive plants when at all possible. But other than that, garden where you want to garden. And here's a hint. You should garden what you can easily see and enjoy and then leave the rest to Mother Nature. And if you live in one of those neighborhoods where you think that that's just not going to be aesthetically pleasing and you might get into trouble... Evergreens can cover up a lot of sins. So that's the sustainability roundup episode. And my Christmas gift to you, dear listeners, is that I have saved my sponsor pitches for the very end of this episode. And I am omitting my normal needy pleas for myself. And that leaves you free at this moment 
shh, do not tell my sponsors to go on to your next favorite podcast. Or if you're new to this one, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for you to binge the other 84 episodes of Into the Garden with Leslie. Just a reminder that I will take a little holiday break for a couple of weeks. Episode 86, full of wonderful new plants and Richard Hockey talking about them, will be in your ears by late January or early February. Into the Garden with Leslie is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, GreatGardenPlants.com, and Color Blends Bulbs. Color Blends is a third-generation bulb company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices, and they are having a 20% off sale on everything on their website. Go there right now, even before you binge the rest of this podcast, and immediately look. It is not too late to get some of these beauties into the ground. I think if you get them in by February and your ground is soft enough and not frozen, you're going to be fine. Colorblends.com. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to your front door. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as tried and true garden classics. And their website makes shopping fun and easy because you can filter through all these wonderful things like deer and light and color and zone and blah, blah, blah. And you can also tell them when you want the plants to come. So it's not like during a polar apocalypse. And if you're worried about the gardens shipping in the mail, don't worry, they're guaranteed. Also, they ship extremely well. And if you put your first order in with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE, you get 10% off. Are you still listening to this podcast? Why are you listening? This podcast is over. Now go and curl up by the fire with your seed catalogs. I'll see you in a few weeks. Bye.